Glad to be back in the Gospel of Mark as we are going through this series we have entitled Unexpected. And of course the passage that Pastor Nathan read uh, for our scripture this morning is probably an unexpected passage to read in corporate worship. Talking about cutting your hands off and your feet off and gouging your eyes out. (laughs) Not particularly the most pleasant thing to think about. But I think the point of it is, will be revealed, hopefully, uh, through the course of this sermon, but also through the course of Jesus' words, which are most important and most significant for us. If you remember, we are, uh, have been going through uh, Mark, and we've been uh, spending some time in both of these chapters, Mark chapter 8 and 9, and we'll spend some time as well in Mark chapter 10 uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, because they are some of the most significant portions of Jesus' ministry. It really kind of starts at the beginning of Mark chapter 8, when again, he performs a miracle, and the scribes, of course, call into question Jesus' deity, and they ask for a sign, and that starts this whole sort of uh, string of events that transpire, which lead to the end of chapter 8, where Jesus gives the first very explicit prediction of his death. And then from there, we keep going, and he, he begins to explain exactly who he is, show and reveal who he is, as we, as we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, and exactly also what it means for those who have faith in him, what it means to follow him. Jesus, of course, is making it very clear that in his own passion and death, Lies the truth of those who follow him that has vast ramifications for them. And of course, as we've been seeing, the apostles didn't quite understand what Jesus was meaning all the time. They were constantly sort of keeping their views of the kingdom to come, so to speak, on an earthly level. That Jesus was going to come and and usurp the Roman throne, so to speak. But Jesus is constantly trying to get them to see that the scope of the kingdom is much bigger than that. That the the errand of Jesus' mission as the Messiah is way bigger than just trying to get out of the thumb of Roman totalitarianism. It's much bigger than that. He has come to conquer sin. He has come to triumph over death, hell, and the grave. He has come to, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 26, to put death to death, to bring the last enemy which is death and bring him captive too. And thus he's reorienting the views of, the, of his disciples, his apostles, reorienting them so that he, they might see what his true mission is. And as we saw last week, he hints at this mission again in verse 31 of chapter 9, where we have here the second prediction of his death. The second prediction that he would be killed. Notice what he says, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Another prediction of his death, but also another prediction and promise and guarantee that that death wouldn't be final. That he would actually have the rule over death because he's omnipotent over it. Without missing a beat, as we saw last week, the apostles misunderstood what he's saying. Look at it again. As soon as he says this, it says in verse 32, but they understood not that saying. And we're afraid to ask him. Afraid to ask him, I think, yes, what it meant that, that he had to be killed. That the king of this kingdom, which he keeps claiming that he is, and which Peter, James, and John saw that he was, 
on the Mount of Transfiguration. They couldn't wrap their heads around this idea that the king has to be killed before the kingdom comes about. It would appear that Jesus' teachings are just falling on deaf ears. Falling on deaf ears and blind eyes, so to speak. I also think that they're troubled by what Jesus says. There in verse 31 again where it says the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. Delivered is more of a term that implies the idea of betrayal. Jesus here suggests, he, he suggests the idea that he is not only going to be arrested and captured and killed, he is going to be betrayed, perhaps by one of his own, perhaps by one of them. This, of course, disturbs them. But even through all of that, they did not understand. They understood not, it says, what that saying meant. The idea that his death, Jesus' death, could have not just kingly implications, but cosmic implications. And they struggled mightily to let go of their thoughts about the kingdom that is here and now. And Jesus is trying to see them that this kingdom is actually much bigger. You can see that in, a, in several little scenes as we're going to cover here. Because we have, but Jesus I think here dismantles any notion that the apostles might have of delusions of grandeur so to speak. Such as the title for today's sermon. Because you can see that in the next scene. Look at verse 33. Because it's fascinating what happens right after this prediction of Jesus' death. Notice it says, and he came to Capernaum. And being in the house he asked them. What is it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? So Jesus and his apostles, they're traveling southwards. Remember, they were in Caesarea Philippi. They went up to uh, Mount Hermon, most likely, where the Mount of Transfiguration was. And now they're traveling southwards, southwards towards Jerusalem. They're going towards the cross in Jesus' mind. And they're coming back to Capernaum, which you might remember is the very scene that was so relevant in the first chapter. It was likely that they're going back to Simon Andrews or Peter's home. Simon and Andrews or Peter's home. And uh, I have to imagine, though, as Jesus is asking this question, now that they're in the house, it says, being in the house, he asked them. I have to imagine that it was a quiet journey. Jesus has spent some time just sort of laying a bomb, so to speak, on all of the apostles' assumptions about what the Messiah would do and what their mission was and what their role in that mission was. And for them, now they're, they're thinking, what is going to happen? All of our expectations about what this Messiah would come to do have just been upset. Such is why they're afraid to ask him. They don't want to ask him any more questions. Learn something else they might have gotten wrong, perhaps. I have to imagine it was a quiet journey. At least for Jesus it was. Jesus is sitting back. I, I think about this, that as they're walking along the way, Jesus is kind of hanging back, watching the disciples, watching them converse among themselves, sort of converse frantically, uh, stirred up all these conversations. They were uneasy about everything that they had just learned. And it wasn't sitting well. As they were journeying south. And somewhere along the way. They had an interesting conversation. Because look at what happens. It says. What was it. That you disputed among yourselves by the way. But they held their peace. 
For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Interesting that um, I love the fact that, that Jesus asks them, what were you guys talking about? Jesus, of course, knows what they're talking about. He knows exactly what they were conversing about. No doubt, either by listening or because, guess what, he is God. And so he knows what they were talking about. As they were traveling south. But he's like a parent trying to catch them in the act, so to speak. Giving them the opportunity to confess. He says, what were you guys disputing about? And like guilty toddlers. Not wanting to admit the fact that they were arguing about something that was wrong. Even though they knew it was wrong. Like a guilty toddler who tries to convince you that they haven't eaten a chocolate chip cookie. Even with chocolate smeared on their lips. They held their peace. (laughs) They knew it. They were caught. (laughs) They were found out. I imagine all of a sudden they had wide deer in the headlights eyes. Ah, He knows. He knows what we were talking about. Jesus poses this question. They were talking about who should be the greatest. You have to see here, they were disputing where they ranked, what their status was like. Who's number one underneath Jesus? Who's the next guy? What does this hierarchy look like in this kingdom? You have to see, again, they're keeping the kingdom at an earthly level. They're keeping it here, just in the here and now, and just how they're going to rank in this new kingdom. We're the closest to Jesus. We have the most proximity to him. So obviously when Jesus brings about this kingdom, we're going to be the next in line. We're going to be his closest confidants. And so who's going to be the really the closest? Who's number one? Who's the greatest? What's this pecking order looking like? They're enamored by all the supposed status and honor and prestige and power that was surely in their minds going to come their way whenever this kingdom came about. They would be noblemen. They would be rulers too in this kingdom. And they had to know who was going to be first. I I, I don't think it's a mistake that this conversation occurs right after the Mount of Transfiguration. I have to imagine, this is only speculation, that this conversation was stirred up by Peter, James, and John. Look at what we saw. Well, we can't really tell you yet because Jesus said we had to be quiet about it. But we saw something really special. (laughs) But we can't tell you. But we just know that we're the greatest. We saw something and we can't tell you about it. But I promise you, we're the most special. (laughs) And this begins this dispute. There's a dispute among the way of how this would shake out. How the pecking order would shake out. How they ranked in Jesus' kingdom. I think this just goes to reveal mankind's heart. I, I think mankind cannot help but create feelings of superiority when privileges are put upon it. Such as what Peter, James, and John likely did. They couldn't help but feel like they somehow ranked better. They were somehow more closely affiliated with Jesus. And therefore they were a little bit better than anyone else. And But for all their disputing it accomplished nothing. Except that they had misunderstood Jesus' death completely. 
They misunderstood what it meant that Jesus would have to be killed and that Jesus would die in their stead. They're still mixing. Material notions about the kingdom, kingdom coming and, and, and taking over Rome, so to speak, with all of their national sort of presuppositions regarding this coming Messiah. They're mixing all of that with Jesus' insistence that this kingdom is won by faith, that this kingdom is coming, coming not by their conquest, but by his And he knows all this. And this is why, again, he gives them their opportunity. He gives them their opportunity to let them see just how wrong they are. He says they held their peace. (laughs) They knew they were mistaken. And I think they were caught up with this notion of greatness. This notion that we are someday going to be great rulers in this kingdom. And here he shows them. In the next little scene, exactly what greatness looks like. Look, at it says, Jesus sat down, verse 35, and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. We have to notice, he... He sits down, which is an interesting thing, because it's not something that is just so casual for us. This was a position of teaching. In this day, a rabbi would sit down and take this position as one of authority. And his pupils would stand around him, eager to listen. So he's taking this position of teaching and instruction, and he's calling his apostles close, and he's looking to show them this view of greatness. Greatness that is entirely opposite, entirely different, entirely, might I hasten to say, unexpected from what they thought would be great in the kingdom. It's not about being first, Jesus says. It's about being okay with being last. It's about putting the needs of all those in, uh, in front of you before your own and serving them. This is what greatness looks like. And he doubles down on it in verse 36. He's sitting and he's teaching the first, uh, excuse me, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, it says, and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. You can see it. He's not wanting them to misunderstand. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. This is what I'm talking about. He brings this child. He brings a child in from the scene. Brings him close and sits him on his lap and says, this is what I'm talking about. To us, it, it is kind of interesting that Jesus would use this sort of illustration to uh, sort of uh, explain what he's talking about. But you have to remember, children in this day weren't the cherubs that we know and love today. (laughs) They didn't view children the same sorts of ways that we do in terms of them being very angelic in all that they do and say, which they constantly prove otherwise, but we still view them that way. (laughs) In this day and age, oftentimes children were marginalized and unnoticed and often left for dead. If they weren't seen as fit or worthwhile or useful, they were just kind of left, abandoned, so to speak. This was prominent in the Greco-Roman culture of the day. They weren't valued. 
They weren't seen as worthy. They were sort of lesser adults, so to speak, and therefore they didn't have the same sorts of values that others held. You have to see this as he does it because this is what he's talking about. He's saying that it is service to even such as these. Elsewhere called in Matthew, I think chapter 25, the least of these. Those who are unnoticed. Those who are largely marginalized. He's showing that this is what the kingdom values. My kingdom values not sort of greatness in terms of what you think. It's greatness in terms of service. Yes, greatness in terms of service even to those who may not or do not deserve it. This is what the kingdom values. He's giving them living, breathing proof. That God's reign values unrestrained and unbiased service. Service that doesn't seek to covet after greatness, but service that is impartial, that is not worried about status or rank or hierarchies. It is service that is only concerned with the welfare, welfare of those being served. Think about it in terms of this scene, but also in terms of perhaps children's ministries in general. It's not a very uh, sort of uh, fancy job to always work with children. They don't increase your status or rank, so to speak. They are largely thankless. <laughs> you do a lot for them and they don't give you sort of the return favors that build up, uh, your, your, <laughs> build up your self-esteem. It is hard to continue in that. And Jesus says that's the type of service. That doesn't look for building its name by doing something where it can get something in return. But just is serving because those who are you are serving are worthy of it. Because the kingdom values service that is unrestrained and unbiased. That doesn't care about reciprocity. That doesn't care about coveting after uh, notions in terms of greatness. This is what God's kingdom is like. It's not like ours. It's not, it's not filled with competitions and classes and accomplishments and accolades. And in Jesus' kingdom, there's no greatness to cover because Jesus' is not, kingdom is not one of materials. It's one of faith and service. And I think this is what he's hinting at. It is one in which the greatest of all, let the greatness of God alone eclipse whatever accomplishments and accolades we hope to garner. In God's kingdom... His greatness is the point, not ours. His greatness is the sole motivator of our service, not anything we can get back. Not the ranks we can go up because we've been so self-deferential, so self-sacrificial in our service. It's His greatness. Greatness even for the least of these. Greatness even for these, He says, that might be last of all. Serving them. But he moves on. Because look at verse 38. John is perhaps pricked in his heart. By what Jesus has just said. Notice he says. And John answered him saying. Master. We saw one casting out devils in thy name. And you followeth not us. And we forbade him. Because he followeth not us. Here you can see the disciples, the apostles, have not only sought about to covet the greatness that they think that they are owed. Now they're trying to confine the greatness of the kingdom to only themselves. 
They're trying to keep it within them. John is confessing here. He's, he's perhaps feeling something that they did was not right. And he confesses the scene. How there was another disciple, another, another uh, disciple of Jesus, not among the twelve, who was going around casting out devils in the name of Jesus, John says. He was casting out devils in thy name. This perhaps didn't sit well with them. It didn't sit well with the apostles and it says they forbade him. They restrained him. They prevented him from carrying out this work uh, in Jesus' name. And why did they do that? John gives them the answer. Because he followeth not us. (laughs) He wasn't with us. He wasn't like us. He was doing his own thing, so to speak. And for them, it it appears as if something is wrong. This guy, he's doing something. He's not following us. He's not doing it exactly like we do. And so we forbade him. We forbid him from ever doing that work in Jesus' name. Perhaps, too, they were jealous. Think about what just happened in chapter 9 earlier. Remember Jesus, he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And he finds the apostles struggling with what? Casting out a demon. (laughs) Remember the scene? It's like in verse 14. They come down from the hill. They come down from the mountain. And they realize that the apostles have uh, had this this boy demon possessed. And they were unable, it says, to perform that exorcism. Perhaps this was a similar scene. A very uh, scene that was relevant or timely. And here they are saying, we forbid him. Perhaps they were jealous of this other guy's success. Regardless... They were motivated to stop him. They wanted exclusivity to Jesus. He was not following us. So we forbid him from ever doing anything in your name. They wanted to confine the greatness of the kingdom to only those that were like them. Jesus, of course, doesn't sit for this. And he soundly corrects them. Look at what he says. Jesus said, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because ye belong to Christ. Verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Here he shows. Forbid him not. The gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is about to inaugurate, to establish, is not confined to one nationality, one creed, to one sort of exclusive club where only those certain people are allowed entrance or allowed to enjoy the benefits of this kingdom. Jesus is saying entering into this kingdom is open for all by faith. Whoever is not against us is for us. He says, is on our part. And notice what he ties it with. He ties it with the name. He says, forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. Those who claim the name of Jesus are those who are with us. It's so easy to become so exclusive, to become so sort of confining in our own little circles and divide ourselves into scales and ranks and classes and hierarchies and systems of classes 
and determine that those who do not follow us, who aren't exactly like us, don't belong. Such is what the apostles were doing. This guy's not like us. He obviously doesn't belong. So we're going to prevent him from ever doing anything in Jesus' name again. And Jesus says, my kingdom's different. It's different than what you think it is. Even those who may not walk exactly like us are part of us because of what? Because of my name. Because of my name, which covers a multitude of sins. This is the greatness of God's kingdom. The kingdom which Jesus has come to establish. And it cannot be confined. It cannot be restricted by human confinements or fences. He's saying there's no rankings to covet. There's no, there's no greatness to, to restrict. Therefore, there are no services to avoid. Notice he says in verse 41 that whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because ye belong to Christ. Verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Even giving another person a cup of water is a service that is worthy of my name. Not just casting out demons, but by meeting someone else's needs. If there's no rankings to covet that can ascend you up a spiritual hierarchy... It frees you up to do even the smallest of things in Jesus' name. And this is what he's asserting here. That there are really no small occurrences or interactions done for the kingdom. Why? Because the Father glories in things that the rest of us would avoid. He glories in little things, little moments, little interactions. The little interactions you have with toddlers... Those you think that don't know or aren't listening, they're really listening. (laughs) Those are kingdom moments. Moments when the kingdom and the gospel of God can be imparted into a little heart and mind. And Jesus is saying here, he's showing them and he's reasserting, reaffirming the fact that even that is a moment of the kingdom of God on display. I think also he's asserting here that it's not the scope or the size of the ministry that makes it great. It's the name and who it is done for. It's the one who it is done for. We cannot confine the greatness of God into the gospel ministry only by large deeds done to people that are only like us. His kingdom is more inclusive than that. His kingdom can't be confined. And notice he says, he doubles down on this again in verse 42 through the end of the chapter. Because he, he reaffirms these sort of little kingdom moments. And he reaffirms what it means to be great in this kingdom. He reaffirms here this sort of uh, greatness that comes about by service. And he says, whosoever, in verse 42, shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him... That a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Then he proceeds to talk about cutting your hands off and cutting your feet off and gouging your eyes out. This, to me, is him, Jesus, certifying, endorsing, and and enhancing the, the, the severity of disservice. Here's what service looks like. Here is what the severity of disservice looks like. 
If you think it, if you think that it's still about greatness and names and ranks and titles and positions, it's better for you that you are cast into the sea with a millstone hung about your neck. If you're unwilling to go to the least of these and bring about the kingdom, yes, even in their context. If you offend even one of these little ones, he says, it's better if you were just cast into the sea. Or if you were just to cut off your hand. Or cut off your foot or gouge out your eyes. These are revolutionary words. I might even use the word radical words. And and Jesus is not calling for mass amputation. (laughs) It's it's not a literal thing where Jesus is saying, well, I want you to cut your hand off if you stumble, if you offend one. He's, of course, being hyperbolic. But for a point, he's exaggerating and stressing the point for a particular purpose. And I think he's emphasizing the seriousness of discipleship. Going back again to the end of chapter 8. Where he's talking about denying yourself and taking up a cross here. He's again reasserting the seriousness of service in his name. And he does so by contrasting life and hell. Look at verse 43. And it says, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Hell there every time comes from a Greek word which means Gehenna. Which is a transliteration of a Hebrew name, Gehenom, which we might know as the Valley of Hinnom. This was an infamous location in Jewish history. It was a valley just south of Jerusalem way back in the day in the times of the Old Testament. Where many apostates and pagans would offer human sacrifices to the false god Molech. You can read about this in in 2 Kings and such. And it was during, actually, in 2 Kings chapter 23, where King Josiah uh, terminated this practice from this location. He actually turned this valley into sort of a a city dump of sorts. Where people would come and bring their trash and bring anything that would want to be burned. And it was burning there forever. The fires of trash and filth just burned with constant embers. And it became so sort of familiar that that scene, the, the valley of Gehenna so to speak, became a symbol of what future judgment would be like. Such as why Gehenna is often related and regarded as hell. And here he's giving them a picture. It's better for you to walk into that maimed. Walk into life maimed than to walk into that place whole. It's better to endure the suffering and the consequences of service here and now than to walk into Gehenna with all of your limbs. Such is Jesus' question. What's better for you in your mind? Are you resigning yourself to uh, losing your life now or losing your life forever? He asked this question at the end of chapter 8 and he's sort of asking it again here. My service, the service of the kingdom, 
It's better than any of that. It's better than any sort of rank you can, you can claim, any sort of uh, hierarchy you can climb up. It's better than any sort of uh, exclusivity that you can feel. Service in my name is serious business and it's serious because it's dealing with souls. And he's asking them, are you resigning yourself to the purifying fire of suffering? Or experiencing the unquenchable fire of hell. What's better? Because here and now there will be suffering. There will be heartache. Jesus is again asserting that following him means carrying a cross. It means denying yourself. Denying your hands and what they want to do. And your feet and where they want to go. And your eyes and what they want to see. And he says in verse 49. Interestingly. For everyone that shall be salt, for everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. Stunning imagery. But he's saying, my kingdom is a kingdom of salt and fire. Is a kingdom that consumes all impurities that come about. It consumes and resists any sort of elements that are impure, that are not part of the kingdom. And he says, this is what my kingdom is like. Where the faithful are purified by fire and preserved by the salt of suffering. The fires of suffering consume our passion for greatness and season us with a passion for service. The fires of suffering consume our passion for privilege and season us with a passion for fellowship. This is what my kingdom looks like. Service. Fellowship. Deference. Where the greatness of God is the only thing that is on the lips of those who are doing the service. It burns up all of our coveting and our confining of God's greatness. And it scorches our competitive notions of rank and class and superiority. And renders us all the same as sinners in need of grace. The fires, the, 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 excuse me, the, the salt that is a fire here that he mentions. This is that which ruins our delusions of grandeur. By reminding us that we are nothing but those who are desperate for, for saving. This, my friends, I think, where he says, have salt in yourselves. Is an invitation to let all of our delusions of grandeur dissipate in the face of lowly love. In the face of Jesus who perfectly pictured and gave them a, a living proof of what he was talking about. Of service to the least of all. To the least and the worst of sinners. He didn't care about classes or ranks or superiority or, or privilege. It says he cast all that off. And was made in the likeness of men as it says in Philippians chapter 2. This is an invitation. To let all your fantasies of success and scales of greatness be consumed in the passion and death. Of Jesus himself. And this happens. When we are all brought low. In the humbling fires of suffering. 
Then we will be seasoned with salt one with another. Brought rejoicing into the saving salt of Jesus' grace. This is what Jesus is affirming here. This is what Jesus is showing. This is what Jesus is exemplifying. The question for his apostles was, whose greatness are you chasing? I think the same question is for us. Whose greatness are you chasing? Yours or his? Whose glory is riding and driving your life? Yours or his? Jesus' greatness looks like service. Our greatness looks like ascending the scales of superiority. Jesus' greatness looks like death. Ours, the opposite. Whose greatness are you chasing? Let us pray.